Where do you go for the most important conversations in applied behavior analysis? The podcast is your source for insightful content, debate, and insights in the ABA field. Whatever your role, RBT, BCBA, C-suite, family member, or advocate, we'll get you to the heart of the meaningful issues in autism. Podcast is proudly hosted by the Council for Autism Service Providers. We are your hosts, Nagarito, Judith Urcity, Ali Respondent, Natesh Kumar, and Jonathan Mueller, and this is our podcast. Okay, cool. Hey, podcasters. This is Hallie, Jonathan, and Na. For this week's episode, we had the pleasure to interview Dr. Tyra Sellers, which was amazing. I was a little starstruck. How about you, Jonathan? I, I am starstruck every time I'm in Tyra's presence. So we like first met each other. We worked together at Trump Behavioral Health. This is maybe 2013 or 2014. And Tyra taught me so much, even though I'm not a behavior analyst. She taught me so much of what I know about ABA. In fact, she um, included me in an FA. She did. I was the attention condition. And that yeah. was really hard because I had to ignore this kiddo who was just trying to play with me. And I have, I still have like stress dreams about it to this day. But no, she knows so much about the field and um, she knows, um, I, I, like having led ethics, been director of ethics, the BACB, she has taught, has been a, a professor at University of Utah. She's worked at independent and um, private equity backed providers. I mean, she just, um, every time I hear her speak, I learn something. And this podcast episode was no different. Oh, I could not agree with you more, Jonathan. Um, just hearing her talk has a sort of calming um, calming to to her words that really makes it impactful. Even though she's no longer a practicing clinician, she's very much impactful in our field. And as a clinician and a business owner, she does impact my work um, on a very regular basis. Um, I look at her as one of the ethics czars of our field and the work she does with ethics in relation to mentorship and supervision is so critical and informs me in how I supervise my staff um, all the time and also how I approach ethics. Um, I love her phrasing of clarity is kind and making sure that as a supervisor, we are we are looking at ethical things from a clear, um, from being clear in, in our standards and, and in how we communicate to others. Um, and also to not use ethics as a weapon and weaponize it um, and instead to approach it as a framework and a way of, of thinking and life and to ask more questions than, than we do accuse people. Um, and for me, I learned a lot from that conversation. Yeah, it was so great. I think we, or I think we know that so many of our listeners and ABA providers are gonna get so much out of this interview. So we hope that you enjoy. So go do it, enjoy. Dr. Tyra Stellars, I think we met in 2013, perhaps 2012. Is that right? Yeah, whenever you started at Trumpet Behavioral Health. So, so it's been 10 years now. And do you know um, how much I learned from you? Even like with my rickety MBA um, and what it takes to manage a P&L, a profit and loss statement. And this is like one of the most powerful things about you um, and the fact that you're not only a BCBAD, you've not only served as director of ethics at the BACB, but you are also uh, an attorney by training, if not in day-to-day -day practice. Yeah, yeah. Just to clarify, I have my law degree. I never took the bar, so I'm not an attorney, but I do have a law degree. Just you, full and fair disclosure. You are much too valuable in our field to simply practice as an attorney. But you know what? You helped to 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 teach me um, the most important part of a PNL um, is it's not like profit and loss. PNL really stands for people you love, and you helped to teach me what it takes to have our high expectations of others. Um, and to be a teacher at heart. And we see that in your supervision, mentorship and supervision book um, that, that you've published with, with Dr. LeBlanc and so many other things. And so Tyra, it's just a phenomenal honor to have you here. I wanna start with who are you? 
uh, I am currently someone put on the spot. Um, <laughs> that, that is okay. I can lean into that. Um, uh, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to be here and thank you for those kind words. Um, likewise, I learned a tremendous amount from you and continue to. So thanks for all the work you do. Um, let's see, who am I? Uh, that seems like such an existential question on a Monday morning. And FYI, for those listening, recorded on Halloween. So like I feel <laughs> I feel like I could have a Halloween type answer um, or just a regular answer. So I am, I guess, in the most basic sense, just someone trying to leave every situation I'm in a tiny bit better off when I'm done with it than I was when I got there which I think aligns perfectly with our science. Um, I've been practicing for over 25 years. I've held lots of different types of positions. Um, I'm a mom to a beautiful son and a beautiful daughter. I'm a partner to my husband. We've been married 30 years. I love flowers. I'm kind of goofy. Um, I don't know. What else is there to know? I'm a vegetarian. I once was suspended in the seventh grade. I'm trying to give you all the important things. You're, you're very fashionable. A bio. Yeah. You're fabulous and fashionable too. <laughs> oh, thanks. Mm -hmm. I don't know about that, but I do try, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, a little bit with the clothes, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I'm just I'm just like everybody else, a person trying to trying to get through the day sometimes, right? So that's me. Yeah. Um, Tyra, how I know this is like the most basic question, but I feel like it gives us a lot of information. But how did you get into the field initially? Um, I I think people's origin stories are so interesting. Mine is not sort of as inspired or um I don't know, uh, maybe impactful as some people's. Um, I really just always sort of leaned towards connection with and work um, in the area of folks that have some unique or special needs. So in grade school, I was um, the kid that like tutored other kids um, I really early on started doing in-home respite work as a teenager, worked in group homes, and that it, I just always worked sort of in this profession in one way or another uh, and tried to um, get out of it, I guess. Like, you know, in the early 90s, this wasn't a, a very well-paved career path. And so even while I was doing this work, I was getting a bachelor's in philosophy, which in case anybody um, is laboring under misconceptions, you cannot do really anything with. And then I went to law school thinking I would do special education law, um, but always also working in, um, you know, non-public schools that were uh, behavior analytic. Um, and finally just accepted my uh, fate and and stayed the course. So uh, yeah, I so I don't have like a, a really cool, you know, I randomly wandered into this class and sort of felt like, you know, the clouds parted and I understood or have a family member who taught me the importance of our science. I, I just kind of was always creeping around this profession or adjacent and and never left. Yeah. So maybe like a gut feeling, a pull. Yeah. Well, you know, here, here's where it got solidified for me. When I was in law school in my first semester, um, and I tend to be a hard worker, right? I don't, I don't have any problem working long hours. Um, I, that's, that's okay with me. I have a pretty strong work ethic. Um, then I was thinking while I was in law school, well, I already work a lot with my folks in special education, with my folks that are behavior analysts, and I love it. And every day I go to work excited and I leave work exhausted, but excited for the next opportunity. But within the work I was doing in law school, I didn't have that same connection. And I sort of thought, like, if I'm going to work 40 or 60 or 80 hours a week, 
what do I want to spend my time doing? Who do I want to be surrounded with? And, you know, in that kind of choice paradigm, it was pretty easy to see which lever I wanted to press. So um, that, that was a big moment and a, a learning experience for me that often what's most important in our lives is to know what we do not want to do, what we do not like. Because if you know what you're not interested in or what you don't like, then it opens up the entire universe of possibilities of other things. So I didn't have to worry so much about responding towards. I just knew I didn't want to respond. I, I could just respond away from the legal profession. And then I had all of these other choices. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tara, that's such an interesting perspective. Um, <laughs> I've heard all kinds of stories about how people fall into ABA. Um, I I love how yours is a little different than than the rest I've heard. Um, how did your journey, like starting as a law student and the whole road to um, to discovering what your passions are and what they are not, um, at least like identifying that part of it, how did that lead you into the world of ethics? Um, you, I feel like you've become one of their prominent voices um, that has propelled that field forward into being um, more critical and more ethical um, and holding ourselves to a higher standard. And that's one of the things I really do appreciate about this field. Um, I, I feel like of most of the fields I've come across, we are right up there um, with the bar set high as it should be um, because of the population we are working with. So what kind of drove your love and your passion and your journey into the ethics world? That's such a good question. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure to some degree, my, um, my bachelor's in philosophy and then my law degree sort of set the stage for me to maybe, maybe, maybe initially I just wasn't, uh, I didn't find ethics aversive. I think a, a lot of folks coming into our profession, it's scary. It feels scary. Um, if you, if you didn't, get good instruction around it that frames it as something that's critically important and something we need to consider on the daily as opposed to just something that you think about when there's an ethics dilemma in front of you. I think it, it can be aversive. It can feel cold. It can feel not interesting or not as important. And I, I probably didn't have that history because I was used to wrestling with, um, things like ethics and um, the law for a number of years. So I think probably that that's the first thing. Uh, and then just having the opportunity to be in professional settings with other colleagues that were brilliant and weren't afraid of having difficult conversations, weren't afraid about talking about past mistakes and that, you know, the critically important thing about a mistake that we have made is that we honor it. I mean, even if it was an unintentional mistake, harm was still caused, right? So there's intent and there's impact. And I, I was lucky enough to have colleagues and mentors early on that understood that even if there was no intent, if there was impact that was harmful, the thing that we need to do is honor the harm that was caused by doing our best to make sure that we don't make that mistake again. And hopefully that other people don't have to make that same mistake. Um, so I, I think those two things in combination, like having some experience with talking about these sorts of things in a non-behavior analytic context, and then having space where um, there was safety to talk about difficult things um, and have that modeled for me early on, I think allowed me to lean in into it. So I don't find I don't find the discomfort that we all experience when we're talking about that stuff um, so unpleasant that I want to get away from it. I had enough history where I could kind of lean into it or tolerate it. So I'm wondering, just as a consumer, um, as a parent, of course, my dog is growling now because I'm talking. Um, junior, zip it. Um, so I, I can hear him if it makes a difference. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I struggle with as a consumer is um, my son has um, had really great 
ABA providers, and he's had some that were really more kind of one size fits all, mm-hmm. and he didn't fit their model, you know, kind of um, providers. And just as we talk about quality, you know, I kind of think that that very much intersects with ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, but whenever I start talking with behavior analyst about ethics, it gets so down in the weeds that I feel like it's detrimental. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the example you hear every time about like, you can't offer your home ABA therapist a glass of water or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like as the parent of someone who really needs quality ABA services, I just don't give a flying fig about that stuff. Like, <laughs> is there some way we could strike a better balance? Cause I feel like we waste so much time on these minute things and it's really more over you know relevant with like overarching issues relevant than all these little minute things so I feel like I'm ranting too but whenever I hear I feel like with behavior analysts I'm constantly hearing ethics 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 <laughs> but like when I go to the pediatrician or the psychologist or the dentist like it's not something they're always talking about all the time they just do the right thing and they don't talk about it all the time. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's exhausting sometimes. And I feel like it's to the point where it's the point of diminishing returns. I really appreciate you sharing your perspective um, from the, the point of view of a, of, a, of a consumer of services, of a caregiver. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And I think um, I think there are a couple of things that maybe inform what you're experiencing. I think one is um, our profession is really young, y'all, right? Like we are currently in the knees and elbows, greasy, pimply-faced, awkward, trying to figure out our social skills kind of stage of our profession. And I think that that for, for us, for those of us that are in the profession, um, means that we are often talking about and trying to figure out things that have long been accepted standard practice in other professions. But I really appreciate your your perspective because I think what we don't realize is that consumers and the people that are looking to us are seeing us do that, which frankly could be disconcerting, could maybe shake your confidence in that profession a little bit. And I think that's a really beautiful um, perspective for us to remind ourselves about like yeah. the way we talk about ourselves and our own profession informs how people perceive it. So I, I think that was a gift that you gave me and the listeners. Um, so I think that's one part of it is we're young and we're kind of trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. I think, um, there are standard practices in more mature professions that, are well-established and are, and are likely to produce ethical behavior. And so you just do those things. Whereas in our profession, we're still again, trying to establish those standard practices. Um, So I think there's a lot of talking about it. I also think partially because we're young and partially because of our general view on things, we can lean towards trying to have things be very operationalized or very clearly defined. And unfortunately, ethics are not like that. Um, And I think that in the next several years with uh, enhanced um, scholarly work with folks like Dr. David Cox doing actual research in the area of ethics and ethical decision-making that behavior analysts will come to have a fuller understanding Um, that it's not just about rule following, right? I think that's the way our early perception of our ethical guidelines and now our ethics code informed our behavior was, you know, the words on the paper say, don't give or take a gift. So a glass of water would be a gift versus a fuller um, conceptualization of something like gift exchange that isn't necessarily... Uh, about me handing you something or receiving something from you. It's about the risks that that could invite in a relationship, particularly for a behavior analyst who's responsible for vulnerable populations. So it's unlikely that 
on a hot day, if I'm working in your home and you offer me a glass of water, that the next steps in the conflict of interest that could present itself are going to be that you now expect preferential scheduling treatment because you gave me that glass of water. Or I feel like I can't give you honest information about your child's progress or lack of progress because you gave me that water. Now, if you flip that and it's a $100 gift card, you can see how those risks get invited. So I think what you may have experienced is just folks treating our ethical content as black and white rules versus uh, engaging with the content so that they understand sort of the spirit of the standards in our code and the risks that uh, the code is attempting for us to avoid and the benefits that it is attempting for us to deliver to um, clients and to our profession. So hopefully as we mature um, and grow into our you know, knees and elbows a little bit, we will have more nuanced um, ways to think about and talk about that, that sort of content. Well, I will offer some advice as a longtime lobbyist um, because we're constantly trying to influence, right? Um, and we're interacting. And there are a lot of ethical um, restrictions around that, especially when we're in state capitals. Yes. And just generally speaking, you know, they just, they do make it very black and white and attach dollar amounts to what you can do. Um, so like in New York, I can't give a gift more worth more than $10. So that means, you know, you can take someone to lunch maybe, or you can give them a donut on donut day, you know? So I don't know if we could move more towards clarity there. Cause I think it would lead to less debate. Um, and, you know, time spent debating these nuances rather than just trying to be innovative and figuring out how to best serve this population. Yeah. Just, I see it. Yeah. as competitive, So I, I know it's a fine line, so I appreciate No, that. I love that example, Judith, because um, that's a, a beautiful example of how our profession is still maturing. Um, because, for example, in the most recent ethics code for behavior analysts, there is a dollar amount now. So that's recent within the last few years, and it is $10 or sort of 10 US dollars or kind of currency equivalent in another country. Um, but for that specific reason to, um, I think, acknowledge that gift giving in some cultures is really important and you risk damaging the relationship, but also there needs to be con some constraints and guidelines for, you know, when we're getting into that realm of gifts that are less about uh, an expression of gratitude and more about trying to influence relationships and our behavior. So yeah, that, that was a really good example. Tyra, I love your perspective about just acknowledging where we are and accepting our present and also, but then not letting go of the places where we can do better, right? Like, okay, we've done a lot of debating and let's move on to the thing, right? Um, I always said, um, and I always give the example of my mom and being from a different culture and how I like, I was so stuck on, on how can I not offer somebody water? Like, it's such an insult to come to my house and not be offered water. Mm -hmm. And I'm being told I cannot do that because it's conflict of interest. And so I'm so happy about the new codes and the evolution and that we can evolve um, what I'm even more excited about is spaces like this. And um, that's how Jonathan, Nitesh, Hallie, Judith, and I created this space where we can have those difficult conversations. Um, I will use your word and Brene Brown's words of leaning in. We do tend to get uncomfortable and want to shy away from those difficult situations of, oh, you know what? I messed up. I literally just called um, Heather O'Shea because I was getting a little confused with the 97155 codes. I've been billing it as with the client present, but we used to not be able to double bill it. And now we can bill it, not double bill, but bill with the tech. But now we can bill with the tech. And I had a situation where it was a little fuzzy. The tech was there and then they left. So I'm like, oh, you know what? This is great. I'll put my hands up. Let me call and ask. And I did. And we had a really cool conversation. She educated me. I learned so much from it. And now I can better educate my BCBAs and better serve our, our clients ethically, right? Our patients ethically. So thank you for giving us the 
I would now I can tell everyone Tyra gave us this time to have difficult conversations. <laughs> so we can have them. <laughs> okay, you can blame that on me. I'm all right with that. I think, you know, I think that your point is well made. And um, one thing that I always remind myself when I think that a learning opportunity is going to present itself. And, and that's what I think of when I'm uncomfortable. It means there's a learning opportunity. I think about the clients that we work with and the fact that we place them in learning opportunities all the time. The caregivers that we work with, we place them in learning opportunities all the time. We're asking them to be outside of their comfort zone all the time. So why shouldn't we do the same in service of developing our skills and being able to better serve and protect the individuals that we're lucky enough to work with? So, you know, like discomfort isn't going to kill anybody. It probably will end up making you stronger. <laughs> Tyra, I want to pivot to um, some of the latest kerfuffle. I don't know what we might call it in our field, but there's a lot of conversations and dialogue around private equity and around growth and what's right to do by consumers. And I'm, I'm curious, my question is sort of how do you, is there a framework that you use to think about how to evaluate private equity's role in our field? Um, and I'm asking you that because you're one of the smartest and most thoughtful people I know. And because you taught me originally what behavior skills training meant, what operational definitions are, right? And, and I, and, and what it means to use the ethics code, though I am not a BCBA, how do you think about that role of private equity and how does ethics relate to evaluating um, it, if at all? Hmm. Well, I, I, I'll start by sharing, I left the clinical provider space when private equity started to sort of become a thing. So, you know, I don't know, 2014-15 is when I left Trumpet Behavioral Health and went to um, to work at Utah State University. So I don't have the same experience that a lot of folks have had over these last, you know, six, eight years. Um, what I will say is in my lifetime, I have learned that it doesn't help to get angry about things that I can't control. Um, and so, you know, it's here, right? So the idea isn't, we have to vilify it and make it be a, a bad thing. Uh, almost nothing is, is bad in and of itself. It's how it's implemented. It's the people um, that are working in different spaces. And so I don't really have a good answer because I don't have a lot of experience. Um, except just to say, uh, if, the, if this is the landscape within which behavior analysis, the provision of behavior analytic services um, is going to be in, then we need to find a way uh, to navigate that landscape. Other professions have done it, sometimes to their detriment, sometimes um, resulting in like a robust field, I think probably in most cases, a little bit of both, right? So I think that the challenge is um, finding ways to make sure that, that what is always driving us is uh, service, right? The service to clients and understanding that um, a behavior analyst isn't a business person, uh, we need to find ways to work together that it's not like talking about, for example, the bottom line isn't an evil thing because, you know, businesses, you need to have a business to provide services. Um, and then from the business side that, you know, focusing on a profession's ethics and understanding why things might be different in this perfect profession than in others is important. So it's more sort of um, a coming together and identifying what are the critical features um, that can strengthen both perspectives um, and where are the points where we need to give. You know, for example, I hear a lot of uh, talk about the use of like testimonials. 
um, particularly in larger backed organizations. And often from the business perspective, the idea is, well, everybody does this. All other professions do this. Of course, you know, you use testimonials because you want potential consumers to hear about the experiences of, of other individuals and that that's valuable. And I think when our response is simply to Judith's point, that's against our ethics code, we can't do it. That's an insufficient explanation. There needs to be an understanding that just because we have some limits doesn't mean it's bad in other practices. And here are the ways that we can and cannot do that. Um, likewise, if I'm, if I'm uh, needing to think about something like assessments available to me um, and I want to purchase uh, some new assessment uh, materials, let's say, I, I don't think it's unreasonable that I should be thinking about the impact um, on my budget, right? So I don't, I don't think I'm answering your question elegantly because, again, I don't think I have a very clear answer except to say that if we know that, that this is the space within which we're working and this is one of the um, variables in the equation that we need to just be thoughtful and respond to it well. Which makes me think, um, as the ethics are being defined, um, I wonder how much of a consumer role there is in the development of them. I'm thinking about with testimonials. So providers, of course, you know, they aren't able to solicit them or whatever. But the reality is that people talk about providers. The consumers do. They provide testimonials to each other all the time. Like you can't prevent that. So, and it is helpful, you know, to be able to hear the good and the bad. So I, I do wonder about the intent. And then I wonder about just how much consumer involvement is there when it comes to development of the ethics, because isn't, what's the ultimate goal of the ethics to protect the consumer or is it something else? Well, I think, I think it's multi- pronged, but primarily to protect consumers, to protect certificates, to protect the profession, and to protect other stakeholders. Yeah. And testimonials is one of those areas where the code has evolved significantly from where it was a couple of years ago, I think partially in response to changing um, of the landscape and acknowledging that, you know, we, our profession looks different now than it did 40 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. I know we're talking a lot about ethics too, but I just wonder as well when we think about, um, like we were talking about private equity and you know some of the controversy around that. Um, for me as a consumer, I've had a bad experiences with non-private equity providers. Um, so I think just quality in general um, and ethical behavior are so important. Um, I wonder what you think about the role of the practice guidelines is for that. Um, and if you feel like the field is aware of that guidance. Um, and when you say the guidance, do you mean the standards that are in our ethics code? No, I'm talking about the practice guidelines for applied behavior analysis. Um, not the ethics code. So the ABA practice guidelines. Oh, the ones that are currently published by CASP? Yes. Yeah. But those are um, the generally accepted standards of care for... Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, um, so that, that document was originally published by the Behavior Analyst Certification Board and then sort of handed over to CASP. I think that uh, many behavior analysts are aware of it. I don't know to what degree business folks in our space are aware of it. Um, and, you know, so I hope that that, that awareness will expand. Um, yeah, so, so I, but I do think folks are aware of it. I see people um, referring to it in presentations or in scholarly work um, in terms of, you know, being our current sort of, uh, industry standards or practice. Um, yeah, I guess I'm just thinking about the way it, it kind of is a more 
practical, because it's the practice guidelines, mm -hmm. um, application of the ethics, right? So, and for me, like when you think about um, the decisions that funders are making, they're not referring to the ethics code. They're referring to the practice guidelines, hopefully. So um, I just wonder as the conversations around ethics are occurring, if there could be more of a reference to both, because I think the practice guidelines are more um, understandable for consumers and for payers. Yeah, yes. I mean, I do think that they need to be considered together. So the way I sort of think about it is the, the ethics code gives us parameters within which we're supposed to operate and practice guidelines tells us more specifically about um, what we should and shouldn't or can and can't do in terms of what the vast majority of other practitioners are doing um, in, in our field. So I think that they, they do have to kind of be considered together and have slightly different but complementary. And I guess you can get even more complicated with the ACQ standards that are out now um, that also then point to what the practice guideline and the ethics and the standard practice and consensus within the field. So um, I could not um, agree more with Tyra about where accepting where we are as a field and realizing that we are toddlers and toddlers do have his effect. Um, tantrum sometimes and sometimes they say please and thank you and they are polite and sometimes they just have to figure things out right um but how, where are we all in that journey and how can we all work together i think um that's the beautiful thing and judith i know you've been working on updating the practice guidelines so i'm so excited to see what a new edition is and i know how a whole lot of your consumer perspective um, that we all value in there. So thank you for doing that great work. Tyra, one thing that, that I've struggled with, and this is complicated. I think I, I like how you described earlier. Ethics is like not, you didn't use the word weaponized, but like it's not meant to be weaponized. Um, it's meant to like, there is a spirit to the guidelines. And, and that can be really hard when we're used to um, very clear operational definitions of how we provide services and, and all kinds of other things. I just wonder, are smaller ABA providers who are, um, whose organization is owned by a BCBA, are they more hamstrung because to the point of testimonials, they're not able to offer testimonials and yet, you know, a business person um, or, or an organization run by a non-BCBA doesn't have to abide by those standards. And I don't know all the different mm. potential instances that that might come into play. Um, mm. But is there almost a different playing field for a BCBA versus non-BCBA um, practice? Practically, probably to some degree. Uh, I mean, I will say when it comes to testimonials, the new, the new code has standards that um, do have some uh, options for uh, testimonials to be used in particular ways, um, you know, with a proper disclosure and whether or not it was a, uh, you know, I mean, they can't be from current clients because I think that invites a clear risk, right? But um, I think what you're, I think what you're asking is, generally speaking, do AB provider agencies owned and run by owned and run by a certificate operate significantly differently than those run by non-certified individuals. Is that, is that kind of what you're asking? That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, th I think, I think in a lot of ways, I think some um, are informed by the ethics code. I think the difficulty is that even if, even if an AB provider agency is run by someone who is not certified, they may have other accreditation that will inform their business practices, for example, through um, BHCOE or through, um, Na, you mentioned earlier, the ACQ, right? Um, and so I think that is very helpful. Um, I think CAST, in many of their guidelines, one of their chapters even has uh, content around ethics in terms of, um, you know, business owners. 
thinking about ethics content and maybe even creating, for example, an, an agency or provider's own code of ethics to inform their behavior within um, their practices. So, uh, and if you are a business owner, you might not be beholden to the ethics code, but almost all of your staff are. So it behooves you to do your best to have business practices that facilitate um, your folks being able to comply with the ethics code. Uh, because, you know, otherwise you're putting your staff in a really, really difficult position. So I do not think that it gives non-certified business owners a free pass at all. I think it might make it a little bit more challenging for them to figure out how to navigate what they perceive as standard practices um, for themselves as non-certified individuals, but then what the requirements are of the people um, that work for them, right? So thank you. And what I'm about to say, I am not endorsed nor paid by CASP nor anyone else to say this, but every freaking organization needs to be accredited. And I don't care who you are, if you're a BCBA owned or not BCBA owned, go get the ACQ through CASP or go to BHCOE. It doesn't matter. Hold yourself and send this to a higher level of standard and send Preach. that important single to you signal to your consumers that's right we're like if we want to do better we all need to do better this is not about pointing fingers uh or waiting for someone else to pave the way for us like we need to link arms and do it now and every single individual needs to rise to the call that every increment that we raise our own bar in terms of expectation of excellence and transparency that we're right that we're raising it collectively for the entire profession so i 100 percent agree with that and i'll even make it a lower lower hanging fruit i mean let's strive for a high bar but for for the busy ones or the ones in crisis right now who are like oh that's a big undertaking become a cast member yeah that's really easy. It doesn't, it will take you 30 minutes maybe. If, and if you're struggling with it, call any of the wonderful cast staff members and please become a cast member. Um, it's such a beautiful community. It shapes me on a daily basis. I get to have conversations with brilliant people like you, Tara, like Judith. Um, you have so much access to so many of the great minds in the field and so many of the people doing the work on the ground in the different specialties, we can't all treat everything. I like I can be good at feeding and sleeping, and there are so many things that come with just treating an individual period. We are not all good at all of it. So how can we all come into community and share right. our resources and our strengths and our best with each other to help each other kind of sh shape the areas that we need to come up with and then give into the community, the areas that we are strong at. And I really believe if we can all work that way, we'll, we'll get very far for the important people that we are all trying to help. Uh, for, uh, for certified individuals and for other behavior analysts, our community of practice is the Association of Professional Behavior Analysts. So join APBA. Um, Tyra, just kind of going back to different types of organizations in terms of PE versus private and the ownership and the interplay with the ethics code. Do you have any, just because there are right now, and I know different from your experience, but there are things happening within the field in terms of PE, not even non-PE, but any recommendations that you have for BCBAs within those organizations in terms of you know, maybe seeing an ethics violation or, you know, maybe it's not a situation where they are accredited and things are happening. Um, you know, what is your recommendation to certificates out there in terms of their BCBA or a BCABA or even I would like to put out the challenge of an RBT as well? Uh, you know, it's a great question. I love that you included RBTs because they are literally the heartbeat of our service delivery model. Um, and as someone who made a living doing direct line work early on in my career, we're nowhere without our clients, our caregivers, and our BTs or RBTs, right? Like they are so important. Um, 
Okay, so your question is sort of asking what can folks do within provider organizations if things don't feel super awesome? And I think the first thing um, is it comes from um, uh, like a, a subcategory of ethics. So there's, you know, you've got deontology and you've got utilitarianism. There's this other section of ethics called behavioral ethics, which is amazing and perfectly aligned with our science because it's really about coming to understand dis ethical decision-making or unethical decision-making. Uh, it's very much about our behavior. And one of the things um, that has come out of some research in that area, not uh, behavior analytic research in that area, but doesn't matter, like non-behavior analytic research is still important and valid and we can use it. Um, but something that is really interesting in some of the research around decision making and um, ethical behavior is that often one person speaking up can make a significant difference. And there are a couple of pieces around that. We have to, one, uh, believe that our voices matter. Um, we have to be in spaces where we feel comfortable enough speaking up. Um, and if we're not, we at least need to then acknowledge our responsibility to speak up. So what I would say to listeners, if you're in a difficult situation, lean on your community of practice, talk to people um, that you trust, that you can kind of suss out whatever it is that is I don't raising the hair on the back of your neck or giving you worry or making you feel like something unethical is happening and then talk about it to leadership in your organization. They might not want to hear it. That's okay. Your voice is important and it matters. Um, and so uh, um, approaching it from a perspective of compa compassionate curiosity. So I'm never a fan of going in with guns blazing and telling people what a crap job they're doing and, weaponizing the ethics code and um, saying that someone is not a good person because they are doing XYZ. That's not what it's about. But asking really important questions, right? So going to your leadership and saying, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about our decision to XYZ or not ABC. Can you tell me a little bit about how that was um, decided? Have you ever thought about the impact of that on this situation, this individual. Um, are you aware of our code of ethics or other standards in our profession from CASP, for example, or BHCOE that might inform a slightly different path, right? So you have to, you have to be willing to speak up and then I think approach the situation uh, to gather more information and share your perspective um, hopefully in the service of collaborating to um, come to a, a resolution that might involve some compromise on both sides, but ultimately will afford more protection um, to consumers. So that, that's, that's, that's the big one, is you got to just speak up. I wonder, Tyra, bear with me here as I, as I play this out in my mind is what you described, this idea of being curious and trying to better understand, which by the way, our world will just be a better place if everyone does that, not just in our field. But this idea of curiosity and, hey, help me understand leadership who is not a BCBA, you know, how these decisions are being made. May I share what I know? Exactly. Could, that, could that actually be though, not just the, the sort of nice slash right thing to do, an obligation under our ethics code, the BACB ethics code, because that's the role of dissemination. Um, yes. I think to some degree that we are called um, to engage professionally as behavior analysts, which means coming to know about the environmental variables that are impacting decisions, um, not about, you know, pointing to something and labeling it as good or bad or ethical or not ethical. So I think it's perfectly aligned with, um, with our code of ethics and with our science that we should have open and honest uh, discussions um, about learning what informed other people's perspectives 
um, and sharing ours so that we can come to a full understanding. You know, there's a great book called Crucial Conversations. Jonathan, I know you've read that book. I don't know if um, the rest of you have, but it's not written by behavior analysts, um, but it is a lovely book sort of about how to have difficult conversations. And one of the concepts in it um, is that uh, the idea is that we should be trying to um, create a, a shared pool of meaning and that we both have things to put into that shared pool and neither person's perspective um, should overshadow or take up more space in that pool of shared meaning. And that you should never engage in behavior that bullies people out of putting their uh, perspective into that shared pool. And you should never be, you know, passive or um, withhold the the information that you need to put in that shared pool of meaning. Um, so, uh, so yes, I do think that it is uh, in line and um, that we are called to do that per our ethics code and our science. And look, just other smart people in the world, like bell hooks who talks about coming to conversations um from a place of honesty and um that that is how you can move to an increased understanding so uh yeah it's just it's just good for everyone um might i even add and i think you said that tara that our science i feel like our science is such a beautiful thing that can lend itself to solving so many problems if we can lean into it, but it, some of the other problems are not black and white. It's not all observable and it's clean and cut. Some of it involves us being vulnerable and searching mm -hmm. inside and saying, Ooh, this is not comfortable. Let me say it's not comfortable. And yeah. even just being able to say that I feel like goes a long way. Um, I really believe that if we even follow the empirical part of our science, we can follow that trajectory and still reach the outcome, which um, you and Jonathan have been talking about. Um, we are called to assess situations. Yes. Yeah. That's the first thing we are all trained. Like as a BCV, that's what I'm trained to do, right? You, you identify what a problem is and then you assess it. And then you have to interview all the stakeholders involved mm -hmm. in different settings to get a full rounded understanding then before you tackle the problem and um, when we get to each other and dealing with each other and when we feel uncomfortable, we immediately throw, um, and I know I do it a whole lot. <laughs> I throw it out the window and um, become defensive and it, that just doesn't help anyone. So I, I really appreciate the book you recommended. That's one that I'll be um, visiting soon. So I think this is sort of a tough question. So feel free to, you know, stick your tongue out at me or whatever, or we can get this out. Um, but just in thinking about ethics and just the different requirements, and I have not read the ethics code um, for BCBA as a, as a consumer, um, but I wonder, you know, we talk about, you, you see the examples and the shaming happening all the time online of people um, with different experiences, um, but I just wonder, you know, when we think about ethics and who organizations are, um, what they stand for. Um, as consumers, um, should we expect providers and should we expect those who provide accreditations to disclose um, whether they're private equity or a nonprofit? Because I feel like there's a lot of gray out there in the world. I don't think consumers know which accreditations are for for-profit or non-profit or which providers are for-profit or non-profit and not that either are good or bad, but wouldn't it be ethical for that just to be something that's transparent? Oh yeah. I mean, I think it would definitely be ethical. I think transparency is, um, is, is always the right way to go. Uh, I don't know um, whether or not there would ever be a requirement to have those kinds of disclosures. But I think that, uh, that I think, I think it, it is in line with our, with our code of ethics, um, and just our science in general. I think 
the disclosures and the transparency probably aren't enough. I think what we need to do is provide consumable information for stakeholders, um, for caregivers, for clients, consumers, also for funding sources. You know, for example, from my perspective, in a service agreement um, with a, a client, there should be a section that tells them very specifically if you are unhappy with something in this service relationship, these are the steps that I hope you will take. In other words, contact your the uh, clinician assigned to your case. And if you can't reach that person or you're not comfortable or it doesn't feel appropriate, go to the clinical director, what have you. But also, here is the contact information for the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. Here's the contact information for our licensure board if you're in a state that has licensure. Our company is, you know, accredited through um, XYZ accrediting body. Here is a link to where you would find that information. Like we should not be expecting consumers to dig around and find that information out for themselves. We should be providing it to them very, very clearly in a handbook, in a service agreement or, or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, have a tip sheet or uh, some training that families can access um, around those things because I, I, I do not think the burden should be on consumers when it comes yeah. to that. When I'll say too, in the autism community, it's this is not unique to the autism community, but there's just that mantra repeated over and over again, especially when consumers are disillusioned where they say, follow the money, you know, follow the money. And so if you can't follow the money, um, and I do honestly, as a consumer, feel like um, you can't always follow the money. Um, and I'm wondering who is regulating that or overseeing that. If you think, you know, that ethics are relate to consumer protection, like what does that reach look like? So I'm not sure who should be um, sort of watching over that, but it's a real problem. Like you can refer me to different organizations or accreditations, but that doesn't mean I'll be able to find out who their funders are. It's very tricky in the world of business. Judith, I was going to say, I, as a BCBA-owned provider, um, I know that I have, now looking back, realizing that I was not trained in business, I was trained as a clinician, and I was trying to help my community and do good. If I did not have strong morals, I was I was born and raised a Ghanaian Christian. I didn't have a choice, and I'm so grateful for that that I didn't have a choice in that way. If I was not, if I was in, if I didn't have that intrinsically, and even then, I have made mistakes. I cannot tell you the amount of room there is to make ridiculous mistakes that are so impactful and that do impact people on a daily basis. So I would love to. As much as there are issues that come with growing fast in any situation in our field included, um, and PE just happened to be the last kind of thing that happened for all of that to happen, I, I do. I am so sorry. I thought I had do not disturb, but it's somebody who's important in my phone. I apologize. Back to my point. So... I appreciate the access, um, the increased access that PE, um, PE back companies do bring. And I also do believe for all the murkiness that this has cost our field, I do believe that it did raise the standard for business, the business end of things, and making sure that as organizations, we have good business infrastructure so we can be clear, so we can have clear policies. And as you say, Tara, clear is kind. I cannot be kind to a family and tell them this is what you can expect if I don't have good business practices that have policies in place to make those expectations clear. And for me, I can speak. I'm going to put my hands up. As a, um, as a BCBA trained small business owner, that, that was where I had a lot of room to grow. And that's where I have leaned on my cast community and have grown so much and also have had to train um, of course, I hire consultants and do the training myself. Um, so my, 
my point to all the providers out there who are clinician run and who are BCBA run, yes, the playing field is higher. It we are I hold myself to a higher standard than most people could who are not BCBAs because of our ethics. But I'm glad, I'm so happy for it that I have that high bar to reach. And I hope we can all lean into that and know that when the bar is high, let's reach higher because the higher we go, the better we can be as a field. And if we are better as a field, we are better for the communities we are trying to serve. Well said. All right, Tyra, are you um, are you tired of us yet? <laughs> no, not at all. It has been lovely. It really has. You're, um, I've never gotten the pleasure to hear you talk. Like I mentioned, I had some staff who just recently attended one of your talks and they were blown away. It was very um, helpful for them and they just loved it. So this has been a treat. And thank you so much for taking the time, especially on Halloween, you know. Um, so we have some, um, what do we call them again? Hot. Rapid fire. I saw Judith's mouth move. <laughs> Rapid. I was like, popcorn? Hot takes? Um, I love popcorn, as long as it has butter on it. There we go. We have a new name. Um, okay, so first one. Are you ready? I'm, and I'm just supposed to answer these like as quickly as I can. Yes, they're okay. random. They're I'll try. Random. Okay. Um, what is your pet peeve? Unkindness and people who repetitively click pens in public spaces. Ooh. I, I got two. I squeezed two in there. Is it just the pen tapping? Like no other repetitive sounds? I mean, I'm not a fan of repetitive sounds. I can usually tune them out, but the click, 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 like when I'm at a conference trying to attend to a speaker and that's happening behind me, yeah. it's it's hard. I have to sit on my hands because I really want to just turn around and take the pen out of the person's hand. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, and then if you were to write, well, something in addition to all the other things that you write and publish, um, if you were to write a book, what would it be about? Like in behavior analysis? No, anything. Like what is something that you could just write and write and write about? I mean, behavior analysis, obviously ethics. And if I did, it would be about like, stop worrying about everybody else. Y'all, you're probably making your own mistakes. Pay attention to your own behavior. But if I just was just something that I would love to write about, it would be flowers. That's right. You mentioned that you love. Do you love like gardening or flower arrangements or both? Both. Both. Yeah. I love it all. Yeah. I, I love it all. They're so beautiful and there's always something growing around so you can find, you know, life and perseverance and beauty everywhere if you just look. And do you have favorites? Like favorite flowers? Yes. Yes. Um, so not in any particular order. My top favorites. Well, my favorite, favorite, favorite is called a hellebore or helleborus. And there are a lot of different varieties. Um, they don't grow where I'm, where I grew up, nor here in Colorado, really. They're, um, sort of more, uh, humid areas, but they're my fave, yeah. fave, fave. But other than that, the more common ones would be, uh, peonies, dahlias, and chrysanthemums. Gotcha. How do you feel about moms? Love them. Really? Yeah. I feel you don't love them? No. I mean, I have some like out on my porch right now, but I feel like it's just this requirement. You have to have mums. And I'm like, why? Oh. They don't smell that good in their kind of I have a chrysanthemum tattoo here. Oh, no. <laughs> well, that's fine. Um, I love them. They're they're beautiful. And they're actually in tattooing. They're very traditional um, in certain uh, types of tattooing, but, um, but I love, I love a chrysanthemum also because there are a million different varieties. You can have the little button chrysanthemums or the big spider chrysanthemums. I think yeah. they're beautiful. And then your, our last question, what's your superpower? I don't think I have a, uh, okay. Um, to find beauty in the world uh, every day, all the time. I think that's something I unfailingly am able to do. Oh my goodness. That's, that's beautiful. And I, I think your superpower is just your profound ability to connect. Like you listen, you connect um, in such a positive way. So keep on being you because we need you. 
big time. My quick question is, we're talking about the threats to, I'm, I'm thinking of threats to our field now. Um, so I'm, shift, I'm shifting gears. We're talking about BCBAs working in B and P back companies that are big and most of them then rise to the levels of clinical director. And usually it's the BCBAs who've been in the field for five years. Nowadays, I'm seeing clinical director positions with one year experience, which I'm working on my stuff. I'll take your advice. And I, I'm hoping that we can grow as a field to the point where we can find more experienced <laughs> clinicians. <laughs> with that said, what I'm finding, the, the trend that I'm hearing from people that I know personally, and this is there's no research to back this up, just from talking to people who are who have been BCBAs for more than five years, they, they start their own company or they're part of a company, it gets bought out. They are now part of a bigger organization. They are given a leadership role. They end that role six months. They sign um, non-disclosures and non-competes. They end that role six months, a year. Then they get fired. And nine out of ten times, what I'm perceiving is usually because they are lifting the ethics standards too high. Mm. That's my perception. It was never communicated that way. That's what I'm perceiving. Now, this said BCBA who has five years, 10 years experience is out of the picture, but cannot work anywhere for a year or two years. And they make their way out of the clinical part of the field. I've just seen this story play itself out so many times, especially in the last six months. And it's, I'm, I don't have answers to it. I don't even know if it's a problem, but it's one that's concerning to me. What's your take on that? There's an excellent article on non-compete clauses by Brown and Broadhead uh, published in Behavior Analysis and Practice that folks should access. In addition, folks should access Broadhead's other um, article around how to identify ethical practices in organizations prior to employment or even during employment. Um, that can be really helpful for folks. Well, Tyra, thank you so much for today. We took um, up a lot more time than we anticipated because it was um, so insightful and I think really applicable to our field and hopefully our listeners too. I know these are questions that everybody has. So um, we respect you so much and are so gracious that you took the time to sit with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Judith and Na and Hallie and Jonathan for having me here. Thank you for sharing your insights. Um, and I'm happy to chat with y'all anytime. This has been lovely. Yeah, I think we should have you every week. We can just <laughs> do everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah.